I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week, we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on our daily lives, so that together, you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. There's a prayer that I go back to time and time again as life throws curveballs. Uh, I'm sure that you, you've never had a moment where you thought something was going to happen and it didn't, uh, or you were hoping that something wouldn't happen and it did, right? Life somehow throws a curveball and you, you try to recover as best as you can. And you look to the heavens and you say, God, what's going on? And, and I want to encourage you that God is not threatened by our questions. And if you don't believe me, go read the Psalms, right? Over and over again, we see the psalmist, whether it be uh, the psalmist David or whether it be uh, Asaph or some other psalmist. We see words like, how long, O Lord? Will you be angry with us forever? Right? You see the, the psalmist point to the realities of life as they face them and kind of point their finger at God and said, okay, you said that you would be our God and we would be your people. What gives, right? Now, here's the deal. If you do that, and the psalmist did this really well, uh, we have to be ready to do it as well, is that when we ask those questions, we have to be silent long enough to hear an answer, right? And if you read the book of Job, you see that God is not shy in giving an answer, and it's not necessarily always the one that we want. Uh, Job, in the book of Job, God gets a little bit sarcastic. He's like, excuse me, I'm so very sorry that you're feeling this pain, but were you there when I established the heavens? I mean, surely you know. Surely you can tell me what's going You know, so don't be worried about uh, asking God some very blunt questions, but, <laughs> but be prepared because God very well may come back and give you some very blunt answers. Uh, but when we get to these places where life uh, throws us a curveball and we don't know exactly what's going on, there's this prayer by Thomas Merton, who is a Trappist monk out of the Kentucky area. And I come back to it time and time again, because I, first of all, I love a prayer that starts off with, my Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. <laughs> because sometimes my life feels like that. And I bet yours does too. Um, and, and so for this, for me, uh, when I get to a stage where something just isn't connecting and I can't figure out where God is and I, and I can't figure out where I'm supposed to be, I come back to this prayer. If you look back through the the ages, and, and please don't, but if you look back through the ages of all the times that I've blogged uh, in my life, this comes up uh, with with some regularity every three or four or five years. And so right now, my family's certainly in a place where where this is the case. We we thought we were moving in one place, and, and now it looks like we're moving in another. Uh, but God is so gracious to us, and He always uh, takes us where community is. And so we are trusting in the provision of God right now. But this prayer is very much something that it has been on my heart and my mind lately. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you. I'm going to pray it. Uh, and Maybe you've never heard it before. Of course, maybe maybe I'm a convert and it's going to show because you've heard this a million times. But I want to offer this prayer to you. It comes from the book Thoughts and Solitude by Thomas Merton. And he says, My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. 
nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. And what a comforting thought that is. I know that even if, even if I don't know the right way, I know that you're going to guide me by it and you'll never leave me to face my perils alone. And, and I think that this is important for us to look at this idea of, I don't even know that I know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean I'm actually doing so. I mean, that just the the intellectual honesty that we can have with ourselves to say, you know, I think that I am following God. I, I am trying my best to walk in holiness. I'm trying to, to fill my mind and feed my soul with those things that lead to holiness. But the fact that I think that I'm doing the right thing doesn't mean that I'm really doing it. It doesn't mean that I'm, I'm following God's will as precisely as I think I am. And I think that f- this is an important prayer to pray, the, uh, of self prayer for self-revelation, as we get into today's topic. We're going to be talking today a little bit about how to dialogue, how to argue, how to disagree with someone else. Uh, because guess what? We have people who share fellowship with us, who we sit next to in the pew every week, who, if we really knew their opinion... We would, we would really be annoyed by it, right? We find them online. We see them on Facebook. We see them in the blogs. We see them everywhere we go. Someone who has a different opinion than I do. And I do my best as I'm engaging in conversations. I don't always succeed. I'm going to be really upfront with you. I, I, can, I can get hot under the collar sometimes. But my goal in discussion is to be very dispassionate, to spend more time listening than I do uh, talking, to spend more time trying to figure out someone's uh, position and what they're trying to say than assuming that position. I don't always succeed, but that's my goal, is to be very dispassionate in conversation. And yet, if you spend any time online, you know that uh, passion is the word of the day or the word of the, the generation or millennia or whatever the case is. Uh, as of late, it seems to me that conversations, that disagreements have gotten quite a bit more polarizing. Now, of course, we, we saw it pretty clearly in the last election. Uh, but even before that, we've seen the trend moving that direction. We've seen uh, more and more people kind of breaking into their own sides. And just in the same way that we see polarization in the political arena, we begin to see polarization in other aspects of life. Uh, you know, you, you think that it's going to be limited to uh, Republican versus Democrat on the, the political talk shows. And then and then you spend some time on the Catholic blogosphere, like I have of, of late. And it's really kind of shocking. And, and I, can, I can watch it, and I can see both sides, and I can even understand how both sides got to the place that they are. Uh, and yet, 
I think that we're called to more. Uh, I have friends on both sides who blog on both sides. Uh, I, I have one side I tend to agree with more than the other when it comes to these questions of, of uh, the Catholic social teaching as it comes to questions of how do we best bring the kingdom of God here on earth, right? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and yet, I, I, as easy as it is to get swept up in the emotion of those arguments, I think we all have to get a timeout. This is what I do to my kids, right? You're having a disagreement? Okay, y'all y'all go into your corners, you take a couple of deep breaths, and we'll come back and we'll work through this discussion and this disagreement uh, with calmer voices and calmer hearts. And I think that you and I, we need to take a step back. We need to recognize that there are polarizing conversations and disagreements out there. And some of these polarizing disagreements are within the church. They're within uh, the questions of doctrine or the questions of how best to express our faith. Uh, and we can get pretty, pretty animated. And we need to just take a step back, maybe spend some time in prayer, maybe spend some time uh, examining our own hearts. I think I know that I'm following your will, but do, am I really? Am I really following your will? Can I humble myself enough to look objectively or, to, or worse, to ask someone else close to me who knows me whether or not I am behaving in a manner that's proper? And then once I take that step back and once you take that step back and we examine ourselves, then we have to do the hard work of recognizing that the person who disagrees with us is a person who's been bought by God ransomed by the work of the cross. We just celebrated on, uh, on Thursday the exaltation of the cross, the feast of the exaltation of the cross, where we, where we see the redeeming work of Christ and the work that was done on that cross and realize that these people who we're talking to and we're disagreeing with and we're pulling our hair out over, these are people who are trying as best as they can Maybe they're being uh, disingenuous towards us, but they're trying as best as they can to live out a life that's pleasing to God. And I may think that they're not doing very well, but guess what? Vice versa is probably true as well. They're probably thinking I'm not doing very well. So we need to take a step back, recognize the dignity of that person who we disagree with, the humanity of that person that we disagree with, the fact that Christ made them in his image and loves them. And then take the time to really try and understand their position. Really try to get a sense for what it is so that we can honor their time, whether or not we think that they're absolutely off their rocker or not, that we give the time to their argument and listen to understand and not listen to rebut, right? We'll get to the place where we can have a discussion about these things and get into some prudential judgment. Uh, iron sharpens iron, but it only does so at the right angle. So let's find that right angle and sharpen one another. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Bo Bonham. He's the, the co-host of a show in Iowa called The Uncommon Good. We're going to have a discussion about how to disagree right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and the implications of our faith on daily life. 
I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Today we're talking with Oklahoma native Bo Bonner. He's a convert into the Catholic Church, entered in 2008. Uh, he's currently uh, expatriate. He's living up in Iowa. He's the co-host of the radio show The Uncommon Good on Iowa Catholic Radio on Wednesdays, which is a show about the common good, social teaching of the church, servant leadership, and the social reign of Jesus Christ, which, uh, Bo, first of all, thanks for being on the show today. Oh, yeah, of course. Thank you for asking me on. And secondly, the the, the definition of that uh, gives away the fact that you had some of your education uh, moving towards Methodism, that whole idea of the social reign of Jesus Christ. As John Wesley would say, there is no holiness except for social holiness, that all of our personal piety ought to express itself externally in the way we interact with the world. Yeah, you know, a lot of... Uh being Catholic for me is realizing that many of the seeds planted um, in in my conversion process uh, happened earlier in my life. I grew up Southern Baptist in Oklahoma. So when we talk about, you know, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it seems natural to me that I end up having a devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. Same thing when you talk about the social reign, when I think about Christ the King and what does it mean to enact the actual social reign of Christ in our life? uh, It's exactly like you said, um, the, the seeds planted in how United Methodists uh, in the classical bit talk about that. And then also being um, a student of people like Stanley Hauerwas out at Duke and, and, and the sort of ramifications of what does it mean to, to believe in an incarnate Lord that has actual things to say about us in the here and now. You know, we, we say that word Lord and we say it just really without even thinking about the fact that it is a political term uh, that we are now invoking. We're saying, okay, God, you are not only uh, the the deity, but now you are also the one who's in charge of the the politics, in charge of the, the, the very manifestations of social life. Yeah, I think that sometimes people, uh, you know, I, I, this is a, this is my harp on on nearly every topic, but it's germane to this. We really want to domesticate um, our religion, God, our the, the, the scriptures. And, you know, make it be like a nice dog that is in the yard and it stays in the electric fence and it knows where to use the bathroom and everything. (laughs) But but everything about our faith is just trying to bust out of those categories and make us rethink this. So we say Lord flippantly. And I always just want to remind people that you're, you're like you are an antiquated weirdo compared to everyone else. If you believe there's this Lord that has a claim on you and that there's a special uh rule that you believe he enacts on your life. And I wonder how many times people have stopped to think what it says when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or when they believe that this king of theirs died on an execution device that we put at the at the front of every parish. You know, there's just small reminders every day that if people would almost like hear the words that come out of their mouth, they, w- they would probably live a bit different. Well, I think part of this is we've lost the the concept and even the language of a monarchy outside of the idea that oh, did you hear the the princess that is having another baby? Right. That we that's a that's okay. our whole concept of monarchy, rather than uh, because even in in London the monarchy is mainly symbolic as they have the, uh, a certain elected populace uh, government. Uh, and so we've lost this idea of the absolute monarchy that. When they say things, we as their subjects now have to to live that out and enact it. Yeah, and I, I think that um, beyond the fact of it's easy to caricature something that, you know, you don't have a, a sort of a, 
ready-made example of in your everyday life. Um, there's also a way in which we, re- you said absolute monarch and I, you were meaning that a monarch that has absolute, um, you know, jurisdiction in our right. life. But even if you talk about this in the sort of political term, we think of absolute monarchs. We think of, uh, the sun prince of France or these people that, uh, you know, the, the late monarchies before they all got their heads cut off because they weren't very polite. Um, But if you think of the very ancient idea, you know, monarchy comes in all sorts of flavors, Mm -hmm. but particularly the Israeli monarchy as it exists at the time of King David and what everyone in Jesus's time is reflecting back on is really this father uh, figure precisely because he's a certain sort of son, right? We think of Psalm 2 and how Psalm 2 is basically a manifesto of this idea about how Jesus rules um, socially and individually and intimately at the same time. And uh, we just simply can't go back to that enough. There's no exhausting that sort of discussion. Um, So when people ask me, you know, what does it mean to really think that this Jesus is Lord in my life? That's what I I counsel them. I was like, pray Psalm 2 until it makes sense, until you get excited about Jesus smashing his enemies like pot shards. Mm -hmm. We're talking today with Bo Bonner on Outside the Walls today. He's the co-host of The Uncommon Good, a weekly radio show on Iowa Catholic Radio. We got a link on social media. And we're talking about uh, Christ as Lord. Of course, just this, uh, this last couple of days ago, we experienced the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, right? Mm-hmm. And it was through Christ's triumph on the cross where he defeated sin and death that he really shows forth uh, in fullness his exercise of that lordship. And we who have been ransomed by that act on the cross and belong to him owe him our allegiance and obedience to bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But in that, uh, because we're talking about political and social structures, uh, we are... uh, sometimes at odds with one another as Catholics, because as, as they say about the Catholic church, here comes everybody, right? Right. We have people on both sides of the current political spectrum uh, who are now trying to figure out the best way to enact the kingdom of God within the social structures that we have presently. It's one thing, and I think it's an important thing to go back and look at what were the social structures then, because it gives us insight into the text of Scripture. And yet at the same time, now we have to somehow wrestle with that uh, and come to a place where we can enact that, the kingdom of God, on earth as it is in heaven. So this uh, this comes up with the question of how do we, in such a politically stressful time, uh, how do we have a conversation with one another, with people who we disagree with, on these very important topics of enacting the kingdom of God. Yeah, and I mean, you know, one of the things that we immediately have to say is that we have to we have to swear off all magic bullets to the problem that is living life among, um, you know, us us sinners who have one foot planted firmly in the city of God. And one we hope stepping towards the city of God. Um, I sometimes see people trying to address this problem and they almost want to act like, well, if you just follow these five easy steps, you'll never have an argument with grandma or uncle Larry again. <laughs> and, and I go, um, you know, one of the doctrines to me that is very obvious is original sin. And just because I've been to a DMV or a quick shop and had to wait on people, 
And then I, I, I see original sin in action and I feel it welling up in my heart. And so on one hand, we have to give ourselves a break. We have, we have to not act like there's some pristine community that, that ever existed in some golden age in the past where no one in the church ever fought with each other. All you got to do is read the book of Acts to, uh, you know, get that out of your head. But right. the question is, how do we do that profitably? How are we going to, um, you know, be up in each other's business, but without sinning, without making the church tear apart? And I think step one is to not let the world's conversation and how it decides to divvy up things be uh, the impetus for how we're going to have these discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, we really want to overlay what's familiar with us onto spiritual things. So we want to act like there's these easy uh, bipartisan um, fights that the church has, but they're not bipartisan. Uh, they're very much multivalent. And then, oh, by the way, we believe in this Lord who's commanded us to do things. And those commands aren't up for debate, even if there is a debate about how we best follow them in this world. But we can't hand over our tongues and our lips, so to speak, to to the spirit of the age when we speak about even things that are difficult. Mm-hmm. We get into topics that I think so often uh, they are addressed in a political system and we see them in the light of that political system. And then as soon as those topics are brought up, we ascribe that entire political position to our, uh, our interlocutor, right? The person we're speaking with. And now all of a sudden we've categorized them to the place where we know everything that they're going to say. And, And I don't think that in that place, discussion can actually happen because the moment that we assign to them their argument without listening to their argument, uh, we're no longer discussing. And, and part of this starts to be, um, our love of efficiency in our day and age. We want to truncate even arguments. And I have to admit, this is one of the uh, true areas where I have a hard time sometimes relating to people because I love arguing. I always joke around that the love language of the Bonners is fighting. Uh, (laughs) You know, I always know that God loves me because he keeps messing with me. You know, for some people, like, they're like, oh, Lord, just leave me alone. And I'm all like, oh, God hasn't fought with me today. What did I do wrong? (laughs) So, but that's personality. That's my own problems. You know, I don't want to impute that on other people. But I do think that at the root of it is we don't like taking the time to actually decide that from five minutes, I can't determine what someone thought about everything their entire life. Mm-hmm. Like we're not willing to, uh, w- when I teach class in philosophy, I say what a, what a philosopher really is like is a really good butcher. They know how to cut the argument at the joints yeah. and to act like that there's a difference between one thing or another. We're talking today with Bo Bonner. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about how Thomas Aquinas argued and what that can teach us today in our discussions with those we're interacting with. Join the conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. I want to hear what you think. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back right after this.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and the implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Today, we're talking with Bo Bonner. He's the co-host of The Uncommon Good on Iowa Catholic Radio. Uh, they've got all their uh, episodes archived as well. You can go take a listen to them over. Well, actually, you know, we'll put a link on social media uh, over facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handles at outside the walls. So you can go and take a look at the work that they do there. Bo, great to have you on the show today. Oh, I, I appreciate it. It's a honor to get to talk with people. And uh, it's always fun to go on other radio shows. I feel like, uh, you know, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, I think we kind of overestimated how much cool stuff we'd be having on the radio, and we're we're trying to make it happen now. <laughs> right. Uh, so we're talking a little bit about argument. Uh, we're talking about which you can find no shortage of if you go online, or uh, you know, social media of all types. Except uh, it reminds me when you go online to social media and view the arguments, it reminds me a little bit of that old Monty Python skit where the guy goes to find an argument and really he ends up not with an argument, but just with a disagreement. Uh, and so the whole concept of philosophical concept of what an argument is uh, seems to have been lost at least to the wider culture. And so here we are uh, trying to figure out how to live out the kingdom of God. So as to answer that prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we bring about the kingdom of God right here and right now of course, there's a great deal of disagreement about that. So we were talking. Yeah, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So we were talking about uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is no stranger to argument, and you're no stranger to St. Thomas. So talk to us a little bit about what we can learn from his argument style. Yeah, I think that when you go on places like social media, it's like, uh, you know, when someone is lost on the ocean, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. It's like, Yelling, yelling everywhere, but not an argument to be had. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Thomas, what he teaches us is that if, if we really love truth and if God is truly uh, the, the truth manifest or, or the seed of all wisdom, that we, we're not going to tr- go into these things trying to win arguments as if the point is some sort of like strange combat where we win points if we happen to make the other person shut up first. What we actually are trying to do is uh, being willing to to die to ourself and 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 live together in this mutual communication, this communion that allows us to approach the truth better. You know, and there's two things to this. One, Thomas does not believe in a, in an idea of truth that's like a light switch. So it's not that something's either true or false. You flip it on or off. Mm-hmm. The 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 way he defines this is that. Truth is the mind's adequation to its object, which is a fancy way to say that truth is something that becomes more and more adequate to what is the case. So even if you, quote unquote, go into an argument with the true position, you know that arguing, if you do it well and with charity, is only going to make you more adequate to the truth. So you don't want to, like, avoid these things. This is actually an occasion of charity that your opponent gives you. You can you can become more adequate to the truth listening to someone that you disagree with. And Thomas shows this best if you look at his Summa Theologia. He doesn't start out with his argument. He doesn't spend pages trying to sound better so that he can just by force beat out the other person. He spends the entire first part of his arguments giving objections to what he's eventually going to argue 
And many people make this point. Thomas is actually fantastic at making people's arguments that he disagrees with better than they do. And what a sign of charity that we really are in this together in this pursuit of truth if we're willing to make our opponent's arguments the best instead of some sort of silly straw man so that when we argue against it, we too are improved as well. Well, at the same time, when you are able to articulate the other person's argument better than they do, uh, in a place where they can listen to you and say, yes, that's exactly what I believe, you're not taking anything out of context, and you've actually stated it quite perfectly, then when we do come and make our, our own argument against that, against that objection, that person doesn't feel offended. Maybe they feel enlightened. Maybe they still disagree by the end of it. And yet they can't say, oh, well, you're just, you're just out there uh, trying to make your own point, make yourself look good and, and doing everything you can to, to be dishonest with my argument. Um, yeah, the Thomas philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, who he, he writes massive tomes. So I don't know if anybody wants to go throw down with any of them. <laughs> But just to summarize it briefly, his point is that people – you don't actually defeat an erroneous argument, an argument that's wrong, just by going up against it. You not only have to disagree with the argument. You not only have to show the best version of that argument. For, to truly overcome another position, you have to know that posi the, the other position so well that you can say why the person would make the argument that they do – and then show why that if they could switch the sort of context their argument is embedded in, that they would actually be able to address their concerns better from within the context of your argument and tradition. Now, that sounds great, but think about the difficult and time that that the, the, the time it takes to be that charitable. Mm -hmm. And you can start to understand why people want the easy, quick, let's get this over in five minutes. Because people don't want to work hard at arguing charitably. Yeah. We're talking with Bo Bonner. He's the co-host of The Uncommon Good on Iowa Catholic Radio every Wednesday. And we're talking about uh, how to argue, basically. And I wonder if some part of this uh, lack of wanting to argue well, part of it, I think, comes from the, the lack of uh, philosophical background that, that are, we've just completely abandoned philosophy in our schools. Uh, a second part of it, I think, comes from the uh, the rampant, as a friend of mine put it, a rampant independentism, right? Mm. Not necessarily individualism, because we all are individuals, but there's this idea that somehow uh, I can have a religion by myself, just me and mm. Jesus. Uh, I can have uh, society just by myself, and everyone else is a bit player in, in my uh, drama that's unfolding. And by putting ourselves uh, in the center of our own minds and the center of our own arguments, uh, there's really no uh, there's no incentive to live socially and to live charitably with those around us. And something about Christianity and Catholicism specifically is that it is, if it's anything, it is a communal religion. That it's a religion of of me with everyone, and not me and then everyone else as their own self. Yeah, and I think the worst manifestation of this is when you make the God of the universe who created it and sustains it a bit player in your, let's be quite frank, boring tale. I mean, that's <laughs> that's 
that's what I always like to throw out to people. I was like, all right, let's take this character, God, who has had this really interesting relationship with, for instance, the Jews, or for instance, the Catholic Church. And he's been at it for a long time, and all sorts of fun, crazy things happen. And now let's take your life, that you watch cat videos and drink Dr. Pepper on occasion. So you tell me, you tell me whose story should be the master of whose. And that's, to me, exactly what you're talking about, is our inability to not take ourselves as like the serious central character in some Tolstoy novel that just drags on and on. And instead of realize that what the church is, what, 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 what the ground of God's charity is he has this vibrant, wonderful, interesting, weird life and story, and he's asked us to be a part of it. I mean, isn't that, that, that's an honor beyond what we deserve. And we sell that short to make God a bit player in our little lives as we sit on our air conditioned couches in a living room. I mean, it's just, it's just topsy turvy. Don't you want to be part of the, the grander story and, and trying to get that through to people that the most interesting story is actually not your life lived alone, but this, this interesting life interspersed with God and other people, etc. Well, I'm going to take that. I'm going to jump off. You're talking about stories. Let's jump into literature. It's as if uh, we want to be... Uh, Bilbo at the beginning of uh, The Hobbit. And it's mm-hmm. it's fine and dandy to invite the great wizard over for tea, right? Right. And yet, if you read that story, my son, uh, my nine-year-old son is reading that story right now. Uh, instead, the opposite happens where the, uh, the great wizard invites this little insignificant creature on a grander adventure. Rather than inviting God into our lives, we ought to be just amazed that God is inviting us into his life. And that includes getting sharp edges knocked off. And it includes being in uh, in the companionship of people, just like in the story of The Hobbit, companionship with people we'd rather not be hanging around with. And yet, as we do that, and we live in community with those who are around us and with uh, the God of the universe, all of a sudden, life becomes so much richer. It becomes an adventure. Yeah, and... I even think the literature we enjoy demonstrates what you're talking about. Um, I'm not saying this is for everyone or all literature, but there's plenty of modern literature that is just about the sort of psychological state of an individual and how they sort of process things as it goes along. If you look at something like Homer's Odyssey, you get these weird scenes where Odysseus, the main character, is sitting around a campfire and people are narrating his life to him, which... You could think that is sort of like weird and who really does that, except if you've ever had that happen in your life, it's probably one of the most wonderful moments or you're dead. I mean, (laughs) it's either your funeral or it's like you came back, you know, three years out of college and you meet up with old high school buddies and you just that practice of retelling a story you all know, but that it, it, it really becomes yours. I think that that's what people are missing out on. Yeah. We've been talking today with Bo Bonner. He's the co-host of the Uncommon Good Radio. I've got a link to it over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handle's at outside the walls. And if you are one of our patrons, we've got one more segment with Bo coming up. 
We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on our daily lives. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. And this week, we've been talking about how to have an argument uh, with Bo Bonner. He's a co-host of The Uncommon Good, a radio show heard weekly on Iowa Catholic Radio. We've got a link to it over on our social media. If you missed any part of this show, we'll have no fear. It's going to be a podcast just as soon as we're done here. Over at OutsideTheWalls.com, click on the episode archive link and see everything we've ever done, including this episode right here. Share it with your friends. Uh, maybe share it with a person who you disagree with so that they can learn how to have a, a decent argument too. <laughs> it's like, hey, you you need this help. I, I've, I've argued with you and you really need to listen to this. While you're there on the website, go ahead and click on that Patreon link as well. Uh, we've got all of our extra content. Each week we get uh, one extra segment, a couple extra questions with our guests that we give specifically to those people who support the show. And for as little as $2 a month, you can get access to all kinds of different content. There are different levels that you can support the show and different benefits that you get. Different, uh, We give away books, we have uh, video chats, we give away these extra segments and much more. So take the time. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and see if there's anything there that piques your interest. So uh, we've been talking about how it is that people can go to the same church. Maybe not the same parish, but sometimes even the same parish. They can hear the same readings every week. They can have the same documents of the church and have the same uh, bishop and the same pope and have just absolutely, completely different opinions about how to live out the kingdom of God. And the fact that we are Catholic uh, means that we're going to find those people. There's going to be a huge breadth of diversity. And so long as that th those positions are uh, held in goodwill and they are in conformity with doctrine, right, uh, it's acceptable for there to be speculation, for there to be disagreement, for there to be diversity of opinions about how best to bring forth God's kingdom on earth. Now, there are certain things we're not going to disagree about. We are not going to disagree about the Trinity. There are things that have been handed down by councils uh, that we're not going to disagree about. These things are part of the deposit of faith that have been handed down to us through the apostles and their successors. Uh, but how those things are implemented, well, there may be some, some difference of opinion. And uh, as long as we are being intellectually honest with ourselves, as long as we are seeking out uh, prudence, then we can have a disagreement about how best to bring these things forward. So uh, it's, it was a great episode. Uh, I just met Bo uh, really earlier this week and was so glad to have him on the show so quickly. Uh, and so by all means, download this one, listen to it again, share it with your friends. Uh, let's go ahead and now uh, we're going to move into our readings from Scripture and from church history. And for me, the cross is a big deal. Um, I remember the first time I went to my cousin's parish long before he was in uh, the, the cathedral in Shreveport. I uh, had my cousin on a couple of weeks ago talking about his new podcast, uh, Catholic Retrospective on the uh, Reformation. But I remember one of the first times that I went to Mass at his parish— and it was, I think it may have been Good Friday, but I can't imagine why I would have been 
out in his part of the world on Good Friday and Easter, but maybe it was. Uh, whatever it was, it was a it was a high liturgy. It was a sung mass, and they had um, they had the veneration of the cross. And this was completely different to me. This was foreign. Uh, I'd never been to. I don't think I'd ever been to a Catholic mass before. Maybe once. And it was so beautiful and breathtaking to be a part of the the veneration of the cross as a Protestant before I ever considered becoming Catholic. And uh, what what a profound experience that was. And so I still have, um, and I don't even know if it can probably be called a devotion. I, I don't know that it's disciplined enough for that, but I have a deep love for the cross and for Christ's redeeming work on the cross. And so we're going to pull our readings today, both from church history and from scripture, out of the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross that happened just this past Thursday. We're going to start with Philippians chapter 2, and this was the the second reading, and something about this is that this is one of, considered by scholars to be one of the earliest hymns of the church that Paul then included in this writing of the book of Philippians, where we read, Brothers and sisters, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That reading comes from the book of Philippians chapter 2. And, and I just want to point out that if, if Christ can humble himself and empty himself and take on the form of a slave, and we are no better than our master, right? No, no servant is greater than his master, we read in Scripture. Then you and I, it's incumbent upon us to follow suit, to humble ourselves, and to become obedient to a death, a humiliating death of losing an argument, a humiliating death of letting someone uh, mock us. They mocked him, right? And not feeling the absolute urge to get up and get even. Less as we diminish, Christ increases. And we have to trust that Christ is the one who's going to, uh, to exalt us in glory at the right time. So, that, you know, to me, the cross is just this, this thing that beckons us as disciples to go out and take up our own cross and to follow after Christ and share in his humiliation and by doing so, share in his glory. I don't like to be humbled. I really don't. I would rather people praise me and say how good things are, but, uh, you know, that's not always going to be the case. And I need to be able to, when someone brings an accusation, I need to be able to, to look at it calmly and not just immediately react, right? I, I need to be able to humble myself just as Christ did so that in, in the midst of these difficult situations, Christ would be seen through me right? If I get up and I get all upset and worked up, I'm the one people see. And I need for Christ to be the one who is seen in my actions. 
And, and you, by the way, as well need that. And so this, this scripture calls to us. It shows us in very clear ways how Christ humbled himself and how you and I are called to humble ourselves. Today's reading from church history comes from the breviary for the day from a, a discourse by St. Andrew of Crete. We're celebrating the Feast of the Cross, which drove away darkness and brought in the light. As we keep this feast, we are lifted up with the crucified Christ, leaving behind earth and sin so that we may gain the things above. So great and outstanding a possession is the cross, that he who wins it has won a treasure. Rightly could I call this treasure the fairest of all fair things, and the costliest, in fact, as well as in name. For on it and through it and for its sake, the riches of salvation that had been lost were restored to us. Had there been no cross, Christ could not have been crucified. Had there been no cross, life itself could not have been nailed to the tree. And if life had not been nailed to it, there would be no streams of immortality pouring from Christ's side blood and water for the world's cleansing. The legal bond of our sin would not be canceled. We should not have attained our freedom. We should not have enjoyed the fruit of the tree of life, and the gates of paradise would not stand open. Had there been no cross, death would not have been trodden underfoot, nor hell despoiled. Therefore, the cross is something wonderfully great and honorable. It is great because through the cross the many noble acts of Christ found their consummation, very many indeed, for both his miracles and his sufferings were fully rewarded with victory. The cross is honorable because it is both the sign of God's suffering and the trophy of his victory. It stands for his suffering because on it he freely suffered unto death. But it is also his trophy because it was the means by which the devil was wounded and death conquered. The barred gates of hell were smashed and the cross became the one common salvation of the whole world. The cross is called Christ's glory. It is saluted as his triumph. We recognize it as the cup he longed to drink and the climax of the sufferings he endured for our sake. As to the cross being Christ's glory, listen to his words. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and in him God is glorified, and God will glorify him at once. And again, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world came to be. And once more, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Here he speaks of the glory that would accrue to him through the cross. And if you would understand that the cross is Christ's triumph, hear what he himself also said. When I am lifted up, then I will draw all men to myself. Now, you can see that the cross is Christ's glory and his triumph. And that reading comes from a discourse by St. Andrew of Crete. So this week in our conversations and our interactions with others, let's seek the cross. Let's seek to put Christ in the center and to give him glory by the way that you and I respond to those around us. This week's show is brought to you by Chip Scheitlin and all the other folks who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link for more information. Join us on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On Twitter, the handle's at OutsideTheWalls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.